We're back in Mark chapter 2 once again this morning, and we're going to be finishing up chapter 3 and diving into chapter 3 a little bit. Before we get into that, though, I do want to just have us consider this question about questions. What is the value of asking good questions? And maybe we even need to take a step back and ask, is there value in asking good questions? Let me just start there. Is there value in asking good questions? Yes, yes there is. There is value in asking good questions. The question then becomes, well, how do we evaluate that? If there is value, how do we make sure we are asking good questions in order to realize that value? We've all heard the, that saying, you know, there's no such thing as a dumb question, right? Is that true? Not really, right? There really is such things as dumb questions, right? There, there are some questions out there that lead to absolutely nothing. But the purpose of that saying, though, is to avoid stifling curiosity. We don't want to stifle asking questions because if someone is afraid that their question is dumb, they may never ask a good one. And we want to encourage We want to say, hey, there are no dumb questions here. You are free to ask any question because the more questions you ask, the more you learn how to ask good questions and get to the important information that the questions are designed to uncover. I'm grateful for my pastor who often repeated the phrase, and I've repeated it several times myself, truth never needs to be afraid of investigation. So that means there are no off-limit questions We want to be good, critical thinkers who ask really good questions. Why? Good questions often stimulate thinking, causing an individual to consider, to carefully consider particular material. Good questions can expose faulty thinking. They probe in, they can reveal logical fallacies. Excellent questions can lead someone to just that one missing piece of information that would just bring all the pieces together and make them all fit just right. And good questions directly lead to our growth as individuals and also growth as followers of Jesus Christ. Sadly, not all questions are equally motivated, right? Some questions are innocent questions. They're seeking to accomplish one of the things I just mentioned. They want to probe in. They want to find information. They want to reveal things. Some questions are more nefarious. They can be accusatory, manipulative, or misleading. I remember when I was a high school student, I was a uh, a volunteer in a youth program, and I had some responsibility and leadership responsibilities at that time. And there was another volunteer who came up to me, another woman in the church, and uh, she kind of cornered me one day and started asking me a whole bunch of questions, and <laughs> she was smiling, and her, her, her tone of voice was a pleasant tone, but let me tell you, they were not friendly questions, right? They were things, they were, they were manipulative questions. They were designed to try to push things in a particular way. She had an agenda that she wanted to accomplish, and she was asking these questions, seeking to move things in a particular direction. Well, even in that moment, I realized, okay, this, this is... I was very uncomfortable in that moment, right? Like, I felt cornered. This person was coming to me. And, and if she was pressed on why she approached things that way, I could just imagine her answering in a, well, I'm just asking questions. You know, hey, it's just a question. What's harm in a question? What's wrong with that? 
problem is they were manipulative questions. Questions are not always innocent. The last several weeks, we have seen Jesus be asked several questions. In fact, you could almost say the entirety of chapter 2 and really getting into chapter 3, it's built around Jesus answering four critical, important questions about the nature of Him as a person, but then also at the nature of His ministry. So if we look at the beginning of chapter 2, we saw that paralytic man being let down through the roof and Jesus forgiving His sins, and that led to the question of the Pharisees, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? They didn't ask Jesus that question directly. They were questioning within their hearts, but He was aware of that question. He answered it. It was an accusatory question loaded with indignation, but it was answered with power. I can forgive because I am God in human flesh. And He proves it by healing the man of his paralysis. Jesus answers in a way that reveals his nature. The next section, Jesus is eating with, the, with people that most would consider to be the scum of the earth, right? We talk about the tax collectors, the sinners, those traitors. So the question is asked. Again, the, they don't ask Jesus directly. They ask his disciples, hey, why, why is he eating with these tax collectors and these sinners? There's an implication in the question. These are not people you should be hanging out with. This is not a question from curiosity. It's a question out of their contempt for these individuals. And Jesus answers, but He does so in a way that reveals His mission. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Last week we saw that the question shifted from why is He eating with tax collectors and sinners to why is He eating at all? The question of fasting. John the Baptist, the Pharisees, the disciples, they were fasting, and Jesus' and His disciples were not. Well, what gives? Why are you acting this way? Why are you not as pious as them? You ought to be mourning the Roman occupation. Why aren't you doing that? Well, Jesus answers, and He does so in a way that reveals the results of His ministry. Why would you mourn at a wedding feast? It doesn't make sense. I've come to bring joy. I've come to take ruined, broken sinners who have nothing to offer their Lord and to transform them and to make them new. I've come to cleanse them from all their sin and say, okay, you are mine now and I'm going to teach you how to live as a kingdom citizen. Those old ways they just won't do. They don't fit with the new way of life. And I'm going to train you to be who I want you to be. The results of Jesus' ministry. Now this week we come to chapter 2, verse 23, where we find Jesus asked yet another question. And as we get through this, we find the intensity and the hostility ramps up with each encounter. Jesus is asked the question and things begin to get dicey. Now this question is the most direct confrontation before, they were questioning in their hearts, and then they asked His disciples, Well, now they're asking Jesus directly. And what we'll find here is that Christ is Lord over the Sabbath. But the implication is, if He is Lord over the Sabbath, that means that He is Lord over all. 
If he is Lord over the Sabbath, that means that he is Lord over all. The section that we're going to observe today takes place in two scenes. There's going to be the first scene that's going to take place in a grain field and the second scene that's going to take place in the synagogue. But they're all centered around the same theme, Christ's lordship over the Sabbath. So let's begin to set the first scene by reading our text, Mark chapter 2, beginning of verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and, they made, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So here we have the situation. Jesus, his disciples, they're making their way through a field. The way that's phrased, it almost seems like they're they're kind of cutting their way through. There's no established path. They're just kind of cutting their way through a field, and they're getting hungry. So along the way, they're plucking grains of head, and they're just eating whole grains of, of wheat there. The Pharisees are, are with him. I find that to be just kind of an interesting detail that they're traveling along. The Pharisees are right there with him. They're observing this. Well, hey, Jesus is the rabbi, so that's just what you do. You follow the rabbi around. You're learning from him. You want to hear what he has to say. And so that accounts for why the Pharisees are there following Jesus around. They want to see what it is that this rabbi is going to do and teach. And so the disciples, they're plucking the grains of wheat. They're eating them as they go. And that is a problem for the Pharisees. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? There's a few things that we need to understand here if we're to understand this text and what the issue is at play here. The Sabbath day, of course, was a holy day for the Israelite people. God had commanded the Israelites that every week they were to observe one day as a Sabbath day. That means that they were not to work. They were used to be a day of rest. No work was to be done. Of course, this was one of the Ten Commandments. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall work and do all your work. The seventh is a Sabbath day unto the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. The Israelites were to observe this on a weekly basis. There are many misconceptions about the Sabbath day in history, and even as it applies even to today. Some people believe that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. I don't affirm that. I don't believe that. Some people believe we are obligated to observe the Sabbath. I don't. I don't think that is what the Bible would direct us to. This sermon today is not about those issues. I'm happy to have those conversations. If those questions are coming to your mind, we can sit down, we can talk about those. I'm not going to get into that today. It's just outside the scope of what this passage is about. But I just want to let you know that I'm aware that those are things that are common questions for us. But God did give the Israelites this command to observe the Sabbath. The trouble was, for the majority of Israel's history, they neglected that command. They neglected this command to observe the Sabbath. The the reality is there was not just a Sabbath day, but there were also Sabbath years. There was a whole system that God had built into place, the whole calendar that was to be observed within within the Jewish religious system, what they were to understand and observe not just a Sabbath day every 
every week, but also there was the Sabbath years that, that was to go on where there was to be rest within the land. Even from tilling the ground and, and planting crops within the ground, there was to be rest in the land. But the people had not observed God's command. And when God sent the Israelites into captivity for 70 years in Babylon, Jeremiah noted that 70 years was the time allotted because the people had neglected the Sabbath years that were appointed by God for centuries. And so in many ways, that 70-year exile was to make up for all those Sabbaths that they skipped. So you can imagine, as we come, the Israelites, they return from exile from Babylon. They're established in the land and and they're wanting to say, okay, yeah, we, we actually want to follow the law this time. We found out what happened when we didn't observe these Sabbaths. Well, maybe we better actually observe it this time around. And so over time, uh, these groups begin to get, uh, get established. And the Pharisees were one of the groups that began to take the law very seriously. And so you can imagine why these religious leaders, they'd be very picky about this particular law because they knew their history. They knew what happens when Israel fails to keep this law and it ain't anything good for us. Judgment would come upon them. And so they essentially took a position not on our watch. All right, we're going to police this like nothing else. And so their question to Jesus is not just a, hey, that's a funny thing your disciples are doing. What, what's, what's the deal with that? No, it's look Look, look at what they're doing. Jesus, they're, they're breaking the Sabbath. They're, they're doing what is not lawful for them to do. They considered this activity the disciples were engaged in to be work, and that was forbidden. So there's an urgency in their question to Jesus. There's an urgency here. Well, we're going to see how Jesus responds to them. He's going to defend the, the disciples' practice is going to defend what's going on. But before we even get into that, there's just a couple more things that I want to note for us about the Sabbath and the Pharisees' relationship to the law. First, as we know, the law of Moses does indeed forbid working on the Sabbath. Right? I quoted that passage from Exodus chapter 20. Keep the Sabbath day holy, in it you shall not do any work. And it if we're going on to quote that passage, it's very extensive. It's you, nor your sons, nor your daughters, your manservants, your maidservants. Nothing within your, your, nobody should be doing any work whatsoever at all. It's a very expansive command. So it is true that the law of Moses does indeed forbid working. Second, and this is something that we may not be as aware of, according to the law of Moses, breaking the Sabbath was a very serious offense. How serious was it? Under the Old Testament law, breaking the Sabbath was a capital offense. If an individual broke the Sabbath, they were to be stoned. They were to be put to death for violating God's law. It's a very serious matter. A third... And this is about the Pharisees and their relationship to the law. In order to protect the sanctity of the Sabbath day, the Pharisees and other religious leaders argued over what actually constituted work and what was and was not permissible. So the text says, you shall not do any work on the Sabbath day. Well, what is the definition of work? 
How much work is work? What can you actually do? So, for example, and these, these are real examples from Pharisaical literature. The Old Testament law doesn't say anything about how far you're allowed to travel on a Sabbath day, but the Pharisees stipulated that you can go no further than 1,999 paces. That 2,000th step, that's work. You're breaking the Sabbath. The Old Testament ruled that you, that you couldn't carry a burden out of your house. The Pharisees stipulated what was and was not a burden, and they didn't allow anyone to carry objects that weighed more than a dried fig. Okay. So they're kind of adding to the law here, right? They're adding their specific definitions of what they think is or is not work. The sad part about this is that there were all these loopholes that they worked into their system. So on the one hand, you can't carry anything more than a dried fig. But, you know, if you wanted to move like a, like a sheaf of wheat, for example, so we think of that like a bale of hay, if you wanted to move that, you could just put a spoon on it. And then, if you're moving the bale of hay, you're not actually trying to move the bale of hay, you're just trying to move the spoon. Therefore, the spoon weighs less, less than a dried fig. You're scot-free to go. You're all right. They had these loopholes that they built in to their system. So they would say things like, no, you can't tie any knots unless you can untie that knot with one hand. Then it's okay. It's like, what? <laughs> it's all rather absurd, right? Or they, they have these very particular things about like, okay, you can't go more than 1,999 paces. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. Well, but you know, there's all these ways around it with their different manipulations and stuff. Mm-hmm. Which uses electricity to run. Yeah. There's, there's all those sorts of examples where those sorts of things continue to this day. So this is the system that they're working from. The Pharisees had added so much to the law that they're jumping on their disciples for breaking the law. And yet, the question that we need to ask is, are they actually breaking the law? The Pharisees had added so much to the law, are they actually breaking the Old Testament command or rather just the Pharisaical rules about the religious leaders that had they imposed upon the people as safeguards to avoid breaking the law? So if you can think about it this way, if you picture breaking the law like there's like a pit that's in the ground and you want to keep from falling in it. In fact, we're going to say it's illegal to fall into the pit. Okay, you can't do that. It's dangerous and illegal. Well, in order to keep us from falling into the pit, we're going to build this fence around the pit so that nobody can get close to the pit. All right, that seems wise. That seems prudent. Well, hold on now. If you get too close to the fence, you might fall in. You know what? It's better actually if you don't even touch the fence. We're going to say it's illegal to touch the fence. Well, you know, maybe we should do something better. Maybe let's, you, you can't be within six feet of the fence. Now that's the law. You can't be within six feet of the fence. Well, to them, they're putting safeguards in place. If you're six feet back from the fence, is there any chance of you falling into the pit? Nope. You're safe. You're good to go, right? But when they, you begin to treat 
the safeguards and the fences as if they are the law themselves, as if it's falling into the pit itself, that's where you go off the rails, and that is what the Pharisees were doing, except they're also building in their loopholes. So if they say, oh yeah, you have to stay six feet back from the fence, well, let's say it's actually measured out by human feet and not by a ruler, and you can use a child's foot. Well, all of a sudden, six feet is not six feet, right? So there's these kinds of loopholes that they would, now, now I'd made up that example, right? That's, that's all made up for the sake of illustration. But that's the kind of thing that's what's going on here. And so what the disciples are doing, they're, they're passing through the grain field, they're plucking at grains of, of wheat and they're eating it. They're not actually breaking the Old Testament law. What they're doing is breaking the rules that the Pharisees had set in place. But what I find really interesting is Jesus' response to them. He doesn't challenge them and get into an argument about what is or is not work. He doesn't debate them on this point. Well, you think that's work, but I'm telling you that it's not. He doesn't debate them on this point. Rather, he appeals to three things. And I find this to be so fascinating how Jesus works his response here. He gives a three-part reason for why it was okay for them to do what they were doing. And I think there's wisdom here for how he approached this. Because ultimately, his reply is going to be much more effective than if he had just gotten into that debate, right? He could have debated them all night long and not accomplished anything. But rather, he appeals to these three things. First, we see the precedent of David. A precedent of David. Now let's read his response beginning in verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Okay. Well, now we have to give ourselves a little bit of context of this, now don't we? What's going on here? This story is found, if you want to write this down, you can mark down 1 Samuel chapter 21, and if you want to read that at some point on your own, you're free to do that. It, that passage tells of David, he's running away from Saul. Saul wants to kill David. David has been anointed as king, although Saul, I don't, I'm not sure at that point in the story, he's aware of that fact yet, but he does not like David. Everybody's praising David. Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his ten thousands. So Saul is worried that David's going to come for the throne, so he's got it out for David. He's going to kill him. David's running for his life. Well, he shows up to the tabernacle. There's the high priest there. The tabernacle, he doesn't know what's going on with David. He doesn't know that Saul is trying to kill David. And David says, I need some food. We left. We've got a mission that we're on. We left in such a hurry. I didn't even have time to pack a lunch. I need some food. We've been running so hard. We're desperate for food. Can you give us some food? Again, the priest doesn't know what's going on in terms of uh, what Saul is seeking to do. As far as he knows, David is a faithful servant of Saul. But the only food that he's got is the bread that according to the law of Moses, the only people that it is lawful to eat that bread are the priests. And David, he ain't a priest. <laughs> and the people that he's got with him, they are not priests. And yet... He gives him the bread. Because of David's desperation and urgency, that was all that was available. 
that was what was given to David. And there's no hint of that being a negative thing that the priest did in the text. Like there's no evidence of God's judgment because of that action. Now, I mentioned this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 21, and I just want to take a brief side note here. If you decide to, to go ahead and read that story, you might notice a detail that is worth recognizing. You may notice that in that text, the priest, his name is Ahimelech. 1 Samuel chapter 21, the priest there, his name is Ahimelech. But Jesus references Abathar, the high priest. What's going on there? Is this a Bible contradiction? Did Jesus make a mistake? Did, did Mark make a mistake here? Well, if we're going to be a careful handler of God's Word, we'll notice the phrase that Jesus said in the time of Abathar. And Abathar was Ahimelech's son. And this is a very common way of speaking of approximating time. We, we like to have more precision with our approach to time as we think about time. Well, there was not that focus on precision in, in the times where passages like this would be written. So for Jesus to say, oh, it's in the time of Abathar, that approximates time back to the time when this would have happened and Abathar would have been alive, but Ahimelech was the high priest at that time. And so we can resolve that difficulty in that way. And it's important to point those things out from time to time because, you know, you can interact with unbelievers and they're going to say, oh, there's contradictions in the Bible. This might be one that someone pulls up. Well, we can say, no, 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 that's not a contradiction. Jesus said in the time of, and that's a way to approximate the time period and not to have that level of precision. So we don't need to fear those kinds of attacks upon the inerrancy of the Word of God. End side note. <laughs> That's just a side thing that I think is, is important for us to think about apologetically. But for the purposes, as we continue to consider the meaning of what's going on here, why does Jesus appeal to David here? Because this isn't just simply, oh, well, you know, David broke the law, so it's okay for me to do so too. Right? That's not what's going on here, right? Jesus doesn't operate that way. And remember, the, the actions of the disciples aren't breaking the law. David actually did break the law. The disciples didn't. They just broke what the Pharisees said was right. Well, David was God's anointed ruler. God promised that there would one day come another Davidic king who would rule over his people, and Jesus Christ was and is that king. The scribes and the Pharisees would have looked at the story of David and, and likely have included something along the lines of, well, he was God's anointed, so he had the authority to do that with that bread, and it was very expedient in the moment because he had no other food. It was a crisis moment. There's one commentator I was reading who noted, he pointed out that it's, it's not about what David did per se, but rather about the fact that it was David who did it that's relevant to Jesus' reply here. He wrote this, the logic of Jesus' argument therefore implies a covert claim to personal authority at least as great as that of David. The Pharisees would have given David a pass. Oh, he's the king. He's the anointed one, right? He's the great king, the greatest king we've ever had. 
Jesus says, well, that's the precedent, and I'm following in that precedent here. David had personal authority by virtue of who he was as God's anointed. When he was in need, he approached the priest for food and the urgency of the situation and the human need outweighed the letter of the law in that instance. And Jesus is David's Lord. Jesus is on a mission that carried an urgency far greater than David fleeing for his life. For Jesus' mission is that of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And if David carries that much personal authority and his situation allows for his actions, how much more so does Christ, the Messiah, the Davidic King who is himself greater than David, how much more does he carry personal authority to violate the Pharisees' imposed religious code that they put upon the people? Again, I've said this several points. I'm going to reiterate this didn't actually break the law, right? You know, there's, there's, a, there's a famous celebrity pastor who once made the statement that God broke the law for love. I've done a study. Of the, uh, there was one time when I was in uh, Bible college where I was seeking to answer the question, why did Jesus break the Sabbath? I was under the assumption that Jesus did break the Sabbath when I began that study. When I finished that study and I, and I turned in my paper, the, con- the only conclusion that you could draw was he didn't. He never broke the law. He never once broke the law. But he had no problem transgressing the Pharisees' made-up rules. Jesus appeals to the precedent of David. And flowing out from that, if we think about the implications of the precedent that David sets and the, the things that are about to follow, they, they all they connect together. Consider the purpose of the Sabbath. He says in verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The story with David illustrates a, a, a principle that is true about the Sabbath and really, in, in many ways, all the law in general. The Pharisees had taken the law and turned it into this this big burdensome thing that weighed upon the people. They turned the the purpose of the Sabbath backwards and upside down. Man wasn't created to serve the religious laws as if those were an end in themselves. And he certainly wasn't created to serve the added laws of man. Jesus says the whole point of the Sabbath was to be a blessing to the people. It was to provide that day of rest, a day when mankind could recoup from the week and be refreshed. It was a time of spiritual richness and reflecting and rejoicing in what God had done for them. It was a time of spiritual renewal before their God. And man wasn't made to serve the Sabbath, but rather the Sabbath was made to be a service for man. When God gives commands for us, it's for our good. He gives us commands for our good. And even though that we can see that this is in the goodness and the wisdom of why God gave the Sabbath, the Pharisees got everything all twisted. 
They were so effective in their influence that Jesus' words here, it would have sounded like a complete redefinition of what the Sabbath is. Like, what are you, what are you talking about, Jesus? Which makes us ask the next question. Who does this guy think he is? Who gives him authority to say what the Sabbath is or is not for? He's coming in here and telling us that what we can and cannot do on the Sabbath, who is he who can declare to us what the purpose of the Sabbath is in the first place? Jesus gives us a principle regarding the purpose of the Sabbath, and he finishes by stating his authority to do so. The prerogative of the Son of Man, verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus here declares to them that He has the authority to make such judgments about the Sabbath because He is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And we think back to the early portions of this book. We're only in chapter 2, right? We're still at the very beginning. Jesus has been establishing his authority, right? We see him, oh, people are amazed. Wow, what teaching is this with authority? He commands demons and they leave, they obey him. He's healing people. He's cleansing lepers, forgiving sins. And now he has, he declares his authority even over the most sacred of divine institutions, the Sabbath. As one writer said, the Christological stakes could hardly be pitched higher than this. He is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The implication of this is that if, and if He is Lord of the Sabbath, then He is Lord over all. I mean, this is the most, the most fundamental aspect of the Pharisaical religious system. And if Christ asserts His authority here, then there is no area of authority that does not belong to Him. He's demonstrated His authority in every realm all the way up to this point. And here He is, asserting His authority even over the religious system of the scribes and the Pharisees that they thought they had cornered the market on. Jesus says, no, I am Lord, even over the Sabbath. If Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, He is Lord over all. Now, this does bring us to the, our, my slides haven't been advancing. Well, sorry. Uh, if he is Lord of the Sabbath, he is Lord over all. This does bring us to the end of the chapter, but there are six more verses that really do belong with this section. So we're going to cover those briefly. Jesus has defended his actions with his, uh, from, about his disciples. He gives the, the prerogative, uh, the, um, the precedent of David, the the purpose of the Sabbath, the prerogative of the Son of Man, well now he's going to go on the offensive. He's given his defenses, now he's going on the offensive, challenging the position of the Pharisees. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. 
I'm imagining the scene there, and I I can imagine you could almost, you know, there's that saying, you could cut the tension in the room with a knife. I mean, that's what's going on here. He's just had this interaction with them. They're, they're, They're wondering, why are you letting your disciples break the Sabbath? And Jesus says, hey, I'm in charge of the Sabbath. All right, I'm Lord over the Sabbath. I would not have sat well with them in that moment. So now as they come into the synagogue, they, they would have passed through that grain field. Now they're in the, in the synagogue there. There's the man with the withered hand, and now they're watching. They want to accuse Jesus. They want to bring this man down. We don't like this guy, and he needs to be done. And I love what Jesus does here. Up to this point, the people have been asking him questions. Why, why, Jesus, why, why? Jesus, now it's his turn. He flips the scripts. The question asked of him are often accusatory. Now Jesus, he gets to probe into the heart and expose the illogic of the pharisaical system. Verse 3. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to him, Is it lawful? And he said to them, sorry, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Jesus kind of presents almost an impossible situation for them in that moment. Like there's no winning for the Pharisees here. If if they say, oh no, you you have to do good, well then the, the good and the right thing to do would obviously be to heal the man, right? That would be the good and the right thing to do. Well, if they deny that, well, then they say, have to say the opposite. No, it's, 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 it's lawful to do harm, to do evil, to kill. Well, surely they're not going to say that, right? So what are they supposed to say? They're, they're sitting there, they, they decide to say nothing. And they, with, this G, this, with this question, Jesus challenges them on two points. First, in relation to the disabled man, is it lawful to do good or to harm? Well, obviously, again, it's good to heal the man. The way Jesus frames the questions, not healing him would be to do him harm. The second part of the question where I think there's a bit of a surprise in the way Jesus asked this question. He says, is it lawful to save life or to kill? I can just picture there for a moment, hold on here, Jesus. Who said anything about killing the man? <laughs> like, he's just got a withered hand. That doesn't mean we've got to kill him. Jesus isn't talking about the disabled man with that part of the question. Rather, he's talking about himself and the Pharisees' thoughts and intentions about Jesus. See, Jesus knows what's going on in the hearts of the Pharisees. He knows that they want to accuse him. They have murder in their hearts. And so the question is aimed at them and and their response to him. So in effect, he is saying, are you going to tell me that I can't do good on the Sabbath to heal this man of his infirmity, and yet you can plot to kill me on this same Sabbath day, and that's okay? Challenges their hypocritical approach to the law. Brothers and sisters, this is how legalism always works. There is always inherent hypocrisy built into any legalistic system. 
Now, I, I want to take a moment to recognize, I, I believe that the word legalism is often thrown around a little bit too cavalierly. I've seen the charge of legalism be used to, to really cast off genuine authority and genuine wisdom of someone trying to speak into someone's life and trying to say, hey, you know, I really don't think you ought to be doing that. I think you ought to be doing this. Well, that's legalism when it's not from a heart of legalism. So I, I, I don't want to go down the path of, of throwing it around and just casting it upon everything. But legalism is a real thing, right? And, and where genuine legalism exists, it is always hypocritical. It always puts a, a burden on individuals rather than serves them. Just like the Pharisees, as they are adding to the law, then they're policing their additions as if it were the law itself, even to the neglect of what the law was originally designed to accomplish in the first place. And so we see to Jesus' response, they have nothing to say. And Jesus responds to their silence in verse 5. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus is angry. There's a righteous indignation here about their blatant hypocrisy, a willingness to plot to kill Jesus for healing a man. He's also grieved. It, he, he's saddened in his heart. He's grieved at the hardness of their heart. It breaks his heart that they would rather break Jesus' body than break their made-up rules. The Pharisees, they reject the authority of their Messiah. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They reject the authority of Christ and plot his death. It's amazing, in just one chapter's time, if we begin back at chapter 2 and trace all the way through, just this one chapter up to this point now, a shocking progression of the Pharisees in relation to Christ. They, first, they were, just, they were just questioning in their hearts, and Jesus knew about it and challenged him. Then they were asking his disciples, why, why is he doing this? And then, then they're coming and asking him directly, hey, why are you doing that? And now here, they're plotting his murder. All because they reject his authority. Now, it's easy for us to sit here today in condemnation of the Pharisees. Like, what are those guys thinking? But the truth is that there can be a Pharisaical spirit within each and every one of us. So often we think that a rejection of Jesus' authority means that we take away from the commands of Scripture. Like, I know the Bible says X, Y, Z, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to ignore that. I, I don't believe that, that that's necessarily applicable to my life. Sure, the Bible says to abstain from maybe sexual immorality, but you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do. So we ignore the commands of Christ, casting off His authority. And that is a genuine example of casting off and, and ignoring the authority of Christ. But sometimes a rejection of authority means that we add to the commands of Scripture. 
Jesus, your commands, you know, they're just not quite good enough. So I made a few adjustments that I think it would be better for us to follow instead. This is where, you know, historically we think of the, the fundamentalist movement really kind of got off the rails on, on some things. They had, they had these theological convictions that were good and right, and that's why today I am very content to call myself a fundamentalist because of the fundamentalist doctrinal convictions that were at the very beginning of the movement. It was a doctrinal movement committed to the sufficiency, the inerrancy, and the truthfulness of the Word of God. But over time, that the movement began to shift and became a, a cultural fundamentalism that, that latched on to particular viewpoints on how we ought to live and behave, and it became legalistic in many areas. And a lot of our fundamentalist churches are still dealing with these battles and these fights even to today. And it's so easy to fall prey to that. It's so easy to, you know, we, we study the Scripture and we come to convictions about what we should or should not do, and then we want to impose those convictions upon others even if the Scripture has not directly prescribed your conclusion. That's ultimately a rejection of authority. If Jesus is Lord even of the Sabbath, then He is Lord over all. We have an obligation to follow Him, follow the conscience and the direction we think the Spirit is leading us in on particular things, but also on matters of conscience, and we want to make clear distinctions, right? There are matters that are matters of clear black and white sin issues. We don't waver on those. But then there are areas that Scripture has not spoken directly to. And we need not add to God's Word. Our banners here proclaim that we exist with a view toward helping people follow Jesus. That necessarily entails a submission to His authority. The Pharisees were rejecting that authority. They thought that Jesus was usurping their authority, and they didn't take kindly to that. If Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, then He is Lord over all. Following Jesus necessarily entails submission to Christ's authority, but the good news is this. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus calls us to submit to His authority, but His commands aren't burdensome for the redeemed. We find that in 1 John as well. We have a new commandment, and His commandments aren't burdensome. He calls us to come to Him, for His yoke is easy. The the Pharisees added so much baggage to the law of Moses, and Jesus frees us from all of that. So following Christ necessarily entails submission to His authority, but submission to Christ is freedom from the world. It's freedom from sin. It's freedom from extra-biblical commands. And that is true freedom indeed. So as Jesus continues to assert and establish Himself as the one who has authority, and He says, yes, I am Lord even of the Sabbath. If He is Lord of the Sabbath, 
then he is Lord over all. And that is very good news. Lord, we do thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to live in submission to you and to your word. Lord, may we never take away or add to the commands of Scripture. May we recognize that Christ is Lord over our religious systems. Submit everything unto Him, everything unto you, everything unto your word, for that is how you have communicated to us. May we never fall into the traps of antinomianism, saying that nothing matters, that there are no commands for us, or legalism, where we add upon and add to the commands of Scripture. May we never reject your authority by these two pitfalls. May we always seek to be people who honor you, honor your word, and to recognize you as Lord. We do pray this in Christ's name. Amen.